We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Reading from Matthew 25. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness." The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. God, these are... On the surface, they are hard words, but underneath, there is so much good news. There is so much hope. There is actually so much healing in store for us. And we have sung this morning that we are people who are in need of healing. Every single one of us in this room. And some of us, we we walk through these doors this morning and we just, we feel that deeply. We feel the fractures and the fissures of our own life. We feel the ways that our decisions have hurt us and hurt others around us. We feel the ways that suffering and brokenness feels like it is just unraveling our lives. And we know that we need healing and we are looking for it. And some of us in this room are just numb, numb in our comfort not really aware of how deeply we need your healing. God, some of us are skeptical that you would even be a God who would want 
to heal us, who could heal us. Would you come and speak words of healing to us now, to all of us in this room, no matter where we find ourselves on the spectrum of belief, convinced, unconvinced, having once believed, trying to believe again. God, come and speak to us, we pray, in such a way that our lives would be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning and welcome. My name's Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, like Dave said, I hope you'll come to the newcomer lunch after if you're new. Um, Our family actually just returned uh, last week. We were gone for a couple weeks visiting some of our family on the East Coast. And it was quite an experience, quite an experience, uh, not just being with family, but quite an experience getting there and back in particular. Uh, On the way there, it took me 26 hours, 26 hours to get from SFO to New York City. Um, I feel like it was like I could have been quicker riding on like a horse and carriage or something, you know. And uh, on the way back, our family, we flew out of Atlanta Uh, into SFO, it took us 31 hours to get back, yes. Uh, Our luggage was lost for three days. And um, and I remember there was a moment in both of these airports where I remember thinking to myself, am I going to be stuck in this airport for the rest of my life? (laughs) And, you know, sometimes the Christian life feels that way, actually. We think, why am I not making more progress? We feel like we're not getting anywhere. Um, we wonder why change is not happening more quickly. And so for the last couple of months, we've been uh, in, a, in a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is, number one, it is a description of Jesus, and number two, it is a description of of the kind of person that God wants to shape every single person who, who, who claims to follow him into. But you see, but that kind of shaping, that kind of change does not happen overnight. It is slow and it is gradual, which is why the Bible calls it fruit. And it takes time. In fact, it takes a lifetime of walking with Jesus. Um, And we've been calling this series uh, The Beautiful Life uh, because at the end of the day, this is the life that we all want for ourselves. Don't you want more joy? Don't you want more peace? This is the life that we all want for ourselves, but here's the good news for us this morning. This is the good news. God wants this life for you even more than you want it for you. And God is determined to build it in you by the power of his spirit, and through the work of his grace, and for the glory of his son. So this morning, uh, we are looking at the fruit of faithfulness, and I want to break this passage down under three headings. We're going to talk about what faithfulness is, why faithfulness matters, and then how we can grow in faithfulness in our own lives. So what is it, why it matters, how we can grow in it. First, what is faithfulness? Okay, in this passage, Jesus tells a parable. It's a pretty famous parable. Many people call it the parable of the talents. Now, today, we use the word talent to refer to a skill or an ability. But in the New Testament, the word talent was a reference to an amount of money. In fact, it was was the largest unit of money that existed in the first century. It it was valued in today's dollars. It was valued somewhere between 500,000. One talent was somewhere between 500,000 and a million dollars. 
And now there are three servants in this parable that Jesus tells, and each of them is given a different amount of talents. And so that's why it's called the parable of the talents. But I think a more accurate title of this parable would be the parable of faithfulness. Faithfulness is the main point of this parable. Let me tell you why. Because there are two servants in this story who are called faithful and one who is not. And, and get this, this parable actually, uh, it's, it comes on the heels. If you, if you were to open the Gospel of Matthew, you would see right before it, right before it, Jesus tells two other parables. So three parables in a row, and they are all three about faithfulness. This is really interesting. One is about a master who faithfully feeds his household. The second one is about five women who faithfully bring enough oil to keep their lamps lit through the night. And then this third one is about two people who faithfully use their talents and one who does not. All right, but what is faithfulness? What, is, what, does, what does somebody who is characterized by faithfulness, what is, what is the fruit of the Spirit talking about when it is talking about a life of faithfulness? Well, Jesus sets this story up by saying that there was a man, a master actually, who goes on a long journey. And he gives these talents, these different amounts of money to his servants. And I want to look at the first verse here. Because there's a word in this verse that actually unlocks the entire parable actually. This is why Jesus was just a master storyteller. There's a word in the very first uh, verse of this story that unlocks the secret to kind of understanding the rest of it. So he, he says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who, who, will, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. And I want you to notice that word, entrust. To entrust someone with something means that you make them a steward. You, you give them something. It's not theirs. It's still yours, but you give it to them. You're entrusting them to take care of it, and to manage it for you, to be a steward. And what's really interesting about this word, entrust, is that it shows up a couple more times in the parable. This is why I say it's actually the key to kind of unlocking what this story is about. When the master returns, and the first two servants, they say to him in verse 20 and 22, if you look at your worship guide, they say to him, Master, you entrusted me with this. You know who never uses that word in this parable? There's one person, actually. And it's the third servant. It's the unfaithful servant. And what that tells us is that the first two servants who were called faithful saw themselves as stewards, but the third did not. And so what is faithfulness? Here, here's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness means that you live as a steward. You see yourself as a steward. See, there, there are actually two ways to go through life. There's two ways to live. You can go through life saying, everything I have is mine. Or you can go through life saying, everything that I have is God's, and I am a steward of it. And one of the ways that you know that you're actually growing spiritually, one of the ways that you know that the Spirit is at work in your life, producing the fruit of faithfulness in you, is that, the, is that more and more you see that everything that you have does not belong to you, but it belongs to God. And God has just entrusted you with it 
to be a steward of it. And we just kind of need to pause here for a moment because this is so countercultural to how modern people think. Let's just take money and success as an example for just a moment. People say, what do you mean my money is not my money? What do you mean? I mean, I, I, I went to school for it. I worked hard for it. I achieved, I studied, I put the time in to get ahead. What do you mean it's not mine? You see, but the, here's the truth. The truth is that none of us can take nearly as much credit as we like to think for our success in life. Uh, Morgan Housel, he wrote a book called The Psychology of Money. And in this book, at the very beginning, actually, he, he, he tells the story of Bill Gates. Bill Gates, who is one of the founders of Microsoft and one of the richest people in the world. Um, in 1968, uh, Bill Gates, get this, he went to one of the only high schools in the world that had a computer. It was uh, Lakeside High School in Seattle, Washington. Not even most of, the top t most of the top tier graduate schools didn't even have computers in 1968. Um, the only reason that Bill Gates' high school had a computer was because he had a math teacher who raised $3,000 to purchase a computer for the school. It was also at that high school where Bill Gates met Paul Allen, who was Allen, who was the co-founder of his country, and they, uh, of his company, and they both, sorry, he does, of his world, his universe, which he could buy if he wanted to. Um, <laughs> oh man, okay. Um, Bill Gates and Paul Allen became obsessed with this computer together, and they spent hours learning it. Um, and get this, I mean, uh, this is some crazy statistics. In 1968, there were roughly 303 million high school age people in the world. 303 million. About 18 million of those 303 million lived in the U.S., about 270,000 of those lived in Washington State. A little, of, little over that, of, a little over 100,000 of that 270,000 lived in the city of Seattle, and only about 300 of them went to Lakeside High School. Bill Gates was nearly one of 300 out of 303 million high school students that had access to a computer. Now, if you do the math, which is hard for me because I'm from South Carolina, so I wrote this down. If you do the math, that averages out to one out of every million high school age kids went to a school that had the money and the forward thinking to buy a computer. Was Bill Gates smart? Yes. Was Bill Gates hardworking? Yes. Did Bill Gates have a mind for computers that few people had? Yes, but you know what else he also had? He had a one in a million head start. Now, there's actually another part of this story that often gets left out. Bill Gates and Paul Allen had another friend in high school. Uh, his name was Kent Evans. And both Bill Gates and Paul Allen, actually, but they, they've both gone on record saying Kent Evans was the smartest of the three. Bill Gates has said that if... Uh, Kent, there's no doubt Kent Evans would have been one of the co-founders of Microsoft, but it never happened. You know why it never happened? Because Kent Evans died in a mountaineering, mountaineering accident before he finished high school. 
Now, every year, there are about three dozen people in the U.S. who die from a mountaineering accident. The odds of being killed on a mountain in high school are about one in a million. And you kind of see the point. Bill Gates experienced one in a million success, and Kent Evans experienced one in a million tragedy. Morgan Housel tells this story in his book, and then he says this. I love this quote. I think we have it. Do we have it? Yes. He says, the reality is that every outcome in life is guided by forces other than individual effort. The world is too complex to say that 100% of your actions dictate 100% of your outcomes. You are one person in a game with 7 billion other people and infinite moving parts. The accidental impact of actions outside your control can be more consequential than the ones you consciously take. For every Bill Gates, there is a Kent Evans who is just as skilled and driven, but ended up on the other side of life roulette. Let me tell you, you don't have to live in this city very long to realize that some people are born with incredible privilege and opportunity in front of them, and others are not. And see, this is why Bill Gates, when he spoke at Lakeside's um, commencement in 2005, he said this, he said, if there had been no Lakeside, there would have been no Microsoft. Now, can I just ask you a question? If Bill Gates says that he cannot take credit for all of his money and success, then do you really want to think or say that you can take credit for yours? The reality is that life is far too complex to say that everything comes down to individual choices and hard work. And when you begin to understand this, when you begin to realize that Everything that you have in life, actually, is a gift from God. It doesn't just come because you earned it or worked hard for it. But it is a gift from God, and that he has given it to you on loan, and that he's actually called you to be a steward of it. Everything in life. This applies not just to our money. It applies to every part of our lives, actually. This is really important. It applies to every part of our lives. We are called to be stewards with everything that God has given to us. Friends, our bodies, they do not belong to us. They belong to God. Your singleness does not belong to you. Your marriage does not belong to you. Your career does not belong to you. If you have children, they do not belong to you. They do not belong to you. And you know what that means? It means that you cannot do whatever you want with these things. That's the difference between an owner and a steward. See, an owner gets to decide, but a steward is someone who says, this is not mine, this has been given to me, I have been entrusted with this, and I don't get to decide. I don't get to decide what I do with my body. I don't get to decide who I date or who I sleep with. I don't get to decide what to do with my marriage just because I have, feel like I've fallen out of love and someone else has piqued my interest. I don't get to decide whether or not I want to be generous with my money. I don't get to decide whether or not I'm going to care for the poor. I don't get to decide whether or not I'm going to forgive people who hurt me. A Christian is someone who says, I don't decide. I am a steward. 
And God decides. He calls the shots in my life. And so let me just ask you this morning. What parts of your life are you living as an owner and not as a steward? What parts of your life are you refusing to surrender to God? What parts of your life are you withholding from God? What parts of your life are you functionally saying, God, this is not yours. This is mine. And I will do with it as I please. See, where are you living unfaithfully? Where is unfaithfulness showing up in your life? And if, if we are honest in this room, it is showing up in all of our lives. I'll be the first to raise my hand. See, because faithfulness means that you see yourself as a steward and of everything that God has entrusted to you, and God decides what you do with it and how you live with it. All right, now, that's what faithfulness is. Why does it matter? Okay, we need to talk about the part of this passage that all of you have been thinking about ever since we read it, actually, which was the very last verse. The very last verse when the master says to this third servant or about him, he says, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, here is what this passage is saying. Faithfulness matters, and it matters a great deal. It's actually a difference between heaven and hell. It's a matter of eternity. And some of you are like, wow, like I wish I had not invited my friend today. <laughs> um, and some of you are like, this is why I cannot stomach the Bible. One of the main reasons that you have rejected Christianity is because you, you say, I cannot believe in a God who would send people to hell. And we got to ask the question for us, what do we do? Let me tell you, I, I love to listen to sermons on weeks that I'm like studying a text. And I saw a lot of sermons on this passage where verse 30 got left out. And I just want you to know that we're, pastors do you no service by leaving out the hard parts of the Bible. We do you no service. What do we do with parts of the Bible like verse 30? How do we reconcile a loving God with belief in hell? I remember Tim Keller saying one time, Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City for many, many years. He had a lot of skeptics come into his church. And he said that people would often ask him, uh, do you believe in eternal fire? And he would say no, and they, they would kind of get this look of relief in their life. And then he would say, it's probably a metaphor for something infinitely worse. <laughs> what could possibly be worse? What could possibly be worse? Well, we actually see something worse right here in this passage. See, we said a minute ago there's two ways to go through life. Two ways to live. One is everything I have is God's and I'm a steward of it. And the second is that everything I have is mine. Now the first way, everything I have is God's and I'm a steward of it, look what this leads to. It leads to living for God and others. But when your approach to life is that everything that I have is mine, you know what it leads to? It leads to living for yourself. Now it may not look like it at first glance, but this is exactly what we see with this third servant in this passage. See, the first two servants 
They say, you've entrusted me with this. They see themselves as stewards of money that is not theirs. It's the king's. And so what do they do? They invest it for the benefit and the purposes of the master. But the third servant does nothing. He buries the money in the ground. And what we really begin to see when when the master shows up is that he's actually operating out of self-protection. He's not thinking about the master. He's not thinking about anyone else. You know who he's thinking about? Himself. Do you know that this is what the Bible calls hell? Hell is self-absorption. Hell is a life that is consumed only with oneself. See, the Bible says that you and I were made by God. We were created in his image with dignity and value, and our lives were made to soar. We were made to flourish. We were made to revolve around God and around others, but because sin has now entered into the world, rather than revolving around God and others, we now revolve around ourselves. And let me tell you, it's brought a bit of hell into our lives. And if you think that's an overstatement, I just want you to think for just a moment about how agonizing it is to be fixated on yourself. When you are, when all you think about is yourself, it leads to a controlling bitterness in your life when people hurt you. People wrong you, people say things to slight you, and all you can do is you just churn and churn and churn over and over and over in your head again about how angry you are, and you fantasize about the things that you want to say back to hurt this person, and how you would hurt them back if you could. When all you think about is yourself, you know what else it leads to? It leads to a life of constant envy. You're constantly looking around at people who have more than you have, and you are jealous, and you're resentful, and and you're never content. There's no peace in your life. When all that you think about is yourself, it leads to this crippling anxiety and fear and worry that life will not go the way that you want it to go. See, it's it's hellish, actually. Self-centeredness is hellish. Now, here's the deal. For most of us, that hellish, that self-centeredness is restrained. It's, It's actually mixed with a concern for others. But I want you to think about this. What if when we die, what if when we die, that's not just game over? What if, what if we go on and on into eternity? And what if the worst parts of us in this world just expand and extend into eternity without any restraint? Imagine the agony of that kind of self-absorption. See, hell is the trajectory of a soul that is living a self-centered life going on and on forever without any restraint, without any concern for God or others. Hell is when you are fully and finally locked in the prison of your own self-centeredness. Now, hell is not just self-absorption. It's something else. Hell is separation from God. See, what is heaven? When we think of heaven, many of us think of heaven as like a place. But heaven, actually, is not just a place. Heaven is 
about a presence. Heaven is the presence of God. And if heaven is the presence of God, then that means that hell is the absence of God. If heaven means being with God, then hell means being separated from God, separated from the source of all beauty and all goodness and all joy and all hope and all justice and all meaning. And this is really important uh, to think about because many people think hell works like this. We think, okay, God gives us, you know, time on this earth, uh, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he just kind of casts us into this, cast people into this fiery eternity while they are begging him and begging him to let them out. And God refuses to do so. Now, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this great little book called The Great Divorce. And he actually kind of counters this whole notion of hell. And he says this, it's a book, it's actually a book about a busload of people from hell who come to the outskirts of heaven. And everyone in this bus is miserable. You know why they're miserable? Because they're living in unrestrained self-centeredness. They're full of pride and self-pity. Everybody's blaming everybody else for their problems. And they are being, in the book, uh, it's a fiction book, but in the book they're being urged to leave it all behind and come to heaven, but they refuse. You know why they refuse? Because they think if they do, they think if we, if we leave ourselves, if we build our lives around God and others, then we will be less happy. And the whole point of the book is this. It is not that God is refusing them. The point of the book is that they are refusing God. And C.S. Lewis says this in his book. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, that will be done... And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. And to those who knock, it is open. See, it's not, what Lewis is saying is that God does not just kind of cast people into hell and they're begging to get out. Rather, what God does is he gives people what they want in the end. And if what you want in the end is separation from God, God will give it to you. it's It's not that if you don't want God, then God doesn't want you. It's that if you don't want God, God will give you what you want. And that's a very sobering thought. I know this is a very heavy sermon. I promise there's some good news coming. Um... Some of you are like, man, I should have stayed home this Sunday morning, but I should have watched on the live stream. Um, Now, that's a sobering thought. But I I want you to think about this. If If you don't want God now, what makes you think you will want God in the end? If, if, If right now you say, I want to live a life that revolves around me, I do not want to live my life as a steward. What makes you think you will want anything different in the end? Okay, what do we do with this? We need some good news. There is so much good news in this passage. So much. How do we grow? This is the third point. How how can we grow in faithfulness? How can we grow? Um, How can we become people who live as stewards and who find deep joy in that? How can we become people 
who were set free from the prison of self-centeredness and set free to love those around us and to love our city and to love God? How, do we, how can we grow in faithfulness? Three points for you very, very quickly. Here's the first. Receive the master's invitation. Look at the very last thing that the master says to the first two students in verses 21 and 23. They both get the same thing. He says, come and share your master's happiness. If you were here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, this is God's invitation to you. God wants you to know his happiness. And this is good news. Because, friends, we are all chasing happiness. Every single one of us in this room, we are chasing it. We are chasing it in our careers. We are chasing it in our relationships. We're chasing it through sex. We're chasing it through money. We're chasing it through substances. And it's not working. And what if your chase could end this morning? Do you know that it can? God is the only being in the universe who is infinitely happy. And he is inviting you this morning into his happiness and into the joy of knowing him and being known by him. Jesus said it this way, I have come so that you might have life and have it to the full. And I know I've said some hard things this morning, but friends, if you're here this morning and you do not claim to be a follower of Jesus, would you consider that the reason you are here this morning is because God brought you here. God does not want to be separated from you. He wants to be with you. And he wants you to be with him. And you may have been refusing him for years. You may have been refusing him for decades. But he is not refusing you. He he wants you. He is inviting you. He is pursuing you. You see, this is where faithfulness starts. This is where, the li- this is where life as a steward begins. It doesn't begin. Some of you are thinking, oh, I get it. So now I need to go and get really religious and do a bunch of things for God and start making all the right decisions. No. The life of faithfulness does not begin with doing things for God. It begins with receiving God's invitation to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Receive the master's invitation. Here's the second thing. Remember the Father's love. Look at the very first thing that the Master says to the two servants in verses 20 and 20, 21 and 23. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, do you know that this is how God talks to you? This is how God looks at you? This is how God feels about you. God is pleased with you. God delights in you. God loves you. See, but the reality is, for most of us who are Christians, this is not how we tend to live. There is a tendency in the Christian life, once you become a Christian, that you kind of fall back into this default mode of the third servant. You know how the third servant lived? He lived in fear of the master's displeasure. And this is how we often live in the Christian life. We have what we might call spiritual dementia. We forget God's love. 
We think, God must be upset with me. God must be disappointed with me. What happens when suffering comes into your life? You think, God must be angry at me. See, and this is actually why we struggle to live as stewards. Because we don't understand the love of God. And so we struggle to say, God, everything that I have is yours. Uh, Kurt Cloninger, who is a Christian uh, author, writer, speaker, in 2017, his wife of 35 years, her name is Tish, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's and dementia. And he wrote about this, and he talked about how, you know, at first Tish began to kind of Forget the simple things, you know, where she put stuff. But when it got really hard was when she started forgetting the not-so-simple things. And in May of 2018, one day, they were actually on a trip in Ireland. He was speaking to a group in Ireland. And one afternoon, he and Tish, they were driving up the countryside along the coast. It's a beautiful drive. She looked at him and she said... I don't know who you are. And he writes this. He says, I pulled over and looked in her eyes. She was not joking. She did not remember that I was her husband. And that was the beginning of my new normal. On the last night of that trip, he was actually scheduled to speak to a group of college students. And he actually, Tish went to bed early that night. She wasn't there. And he shared with them some of his grief about feeling like he was losing his wife. And he, at the end of that meeting, these students asked him if, if they could pray for him. And this is what he writes. He says, near the end, one young Irish woman prayed. I can still hear in my head the melodious timbre of her Irish accent. She prayed, Lord Jesus, you know what it's like to have a forgetful bride. Cloninger says, and that was it. I laughed through my tears. This young Irish student probably had no idea how prophetically she had prayed. I was reminded powerfully in a flash that Jesus knew better than me what to do with a forgetful bride. Love her. I was reminded that I, with all my doubts and wondering and impatience, was his forgetful bride, and he simply loved me, and he still loves me. He says, it's been over a year since that Irish prayer. Tish is, is getting steadily worse. Today we celebrated our 35th anniversary at a cabin in the mountains of North Carolina. And I reminded her this morning, as I do every morning, I'm your husband and I love you. This afternoon when we returned from a marvelous late lunch at a streamside mountain restaurant, she looked at me quizzically and said, you're my dad, right? She asked this often. I gave her my standard reply of, nope, your dad's been dead for 10 years, and I'm a whole lot better looking than your dad ever was. <laughs> he says, so the days are getting very interesting for me. God only knows what life with my forgetful bride will look like in the coming days, but I know that as his forgetful bride, Jesus will keep on loving me, and I pray to do the same to all those dear to me, especially my bride. The more you remember God's love, the more you will be set free from the prison of your own self. The more you will be set free to love God and to love others. 
Here's the last thing. Receive the master's invitation. Remember the father's love. Rest in the faithful son. Who is Jesus in this story? Who is Jesus in the parable of the talents? I mean, on the one hand, he's the master, right? He's the one who gives us everything that we have. Everything that we have comes from him. Uh, Everything that we have is a gift from him. And, And he's also the judge. So on the one hand, he's the master, but on the other hand, he is the true faithful servant. See, Jesus is the one that the Father looks at and says, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what God did the day of Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration. This is my son, whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. He is the true faithful servant because he is the one who came into this world and he is the only one who lived a perfectly obedient life, a perfectly faithful life. He is the only one who perfectly loved God and loved others, and he is the only one who has come and lived as a true steward, who came and said, God, everything that I have is yours, even my very life. And where did it take him? You say, well, it took him to the cross. Yes, but it took him somewhere Even further than that, it took him to hell. It took him to total separation from God. This is why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was totally separated from God. Why? So that we never would be. See, friends, I know know that many of us in this room, we really wrestle with belief in hell. And there's a lot of problems to that if you wrestle with it. Because let me tell you, if you haven't been paying attention, there's a lot of evil and injustice in this world that we need to be brought to account. But there's another problem with that. And it's this. Hell is the way that you know how much God loves you. You will never understand how much Jesus loves you until you see that he went to hell for you. Until you see that he did all of this for you, even when you refused him. Even when you wanted nothing to do with them. The New Testament says, while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. And that means that now because of his perfect life and because of his sacrificial death, God can now look at you and me, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, God can look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And friends, that is what this table points us to. This table reminds us of God's love for us. A love so great that it went to hell and back for us. And this table is what enables our faithfulness. It is what fuels our ability to say, God, everything that I have is yours. Friends, come to this table this morning. See his great love for you and give yourself to him and you will be free. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Gracious God, what an invitation you have laid before us at this table to come and know your love, to come and experience your grace, to come and be astonished once again or maybe for the first time of a God who says, I will give up everything, even my own life, to love you. Would you give us eyes to see that this morning? Would you give us minds to believe it? Would you give us hearts to feel it, God? We need to feel it. We need to not just know it in our heads, but we need to feel it deep in our bones. Would you come and do this work this morning as we eat and drink together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.